What's the worst thing that can happen? That's what Andy Cook asked himself when Tetra was about two weeks away from going out of business. The answers were obvious. They'd lose the team. He'd have to sell more stock he'd earned at HubSpot to pay his personal bills, maybe even move in with mom and dad. But maybe he and his co-founder Nelson could keep trying to make it work. Luckily, the worst case scenario never panned out. Instead, they had to make some hard decisions, mainly around decreasing expenses. Andy and Nelson stopped taking paychecks. The team took temporary pay cuts. The goal was to get to ramen profitability, as Andy called it, because, well, ramen noodles was about all they could afford. Then they made some long-term bets, the big one being around launching a freemium plan. It took months, and a team committed to his vision, but eventually the team got their salaries back up, Andy and Nelson were able to take paychecks again, and, well, no one is eating ramen noodles anymore. At least, not out of necessity. This is Ground Up. It's a podcast about growth, except without all the numbers. Here, we tell the stories of everything behind the numbers. The ideas, the habits, the discipline, and also the personal and professional growth of some of the smartest marketers and business owners that we know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. So I checked before you came on today. Last time you were on the show was a year and a half ago. It was February 2018, a little over a year and a half ago. At the time, Tetra was flirting with profitability. Um, you know, you had been on the verge or close to going out of business. So here we are, uh, October 2019. It's almost November. How are things different with Tetra today? The biggest difference uh, for us today is that we are actually profitable and sustainable. <laughs> Uh, for a little bit more context, we, um, almost went out of business. Uh, we had like $28,000 in the bank, cut expenses. My co-founder and I stopped taking salaries. Uh, and through all those cuts, we were able to get to ramen profitability. Ramen uh, profitability. <laughs> yeah. Where, uh, you know, we were covering all the costs, uh, that we needed to run the service. We were paying our employees, um, you know, a discounted salary, but they were still getting paid. Uh, and my co-founder and I weren't getting salaries, but we were able to afford ramen, um, eat off that. Um, but yeah, now over the last year, we've kept growing revenue. Uh, we've grown the team. Uh, we Once we got out of that nosedive, uh, where it was like, okay, we can sustain for a little bit. And like, there's not a high chance we're going to outright run out of money. Uh, we were able to raise a follow-on, like second part of our angel round too, to give us a little bit more wiggle room. Um, and last month, we um, actually put money into our bank account uh, while also paying everyone real salaries, too, for the first time ever. So that's really exciting. So what are you having for dinner, though? Ramen? Or what, have you graduated to... What, what are you at now? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to eat healthier. So I've graduated <laughs> to, like, chicken and vegetables. There but you yeah, go. ramen. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so... Uh, and during that last time when you were on the show, you had unsuccessfully tried to raise another round that year. I think it was uh, 2018 or maybe it was 2017. Um, you had raised an initial round. What was it? April of 2016. Uh, you guys raised 931000 Uh most recent one you had was actually a year ago now. Uh, you mm -hmm. raised 590000 But when we last talked, you were in a race to profitability at that time because you had unsuccessfully tried to raise another round that year. Um, and it sounded like that process had kind of beat you up a little bit. Um, it sucked up a lot of your time, obviously. So what was different, uh, this last time when you had, 
uh, approached fundraising. Why was that different? Why was that a priority at the time? And, and, and why did it work that time where it didn't maybe a year and a half prior? Yeah, the year and a half prior raise was tougher um, because we were trying to kind of raise the next round um, because that's what you do. So we raised the initial round in April 2016. Uh, it was like 900K, um, like you mentioned. And then we grew the team and kind of were on a race to get enough traction to raise the next round. Um, but we didn't really hit the traction point that we needed to to be able to raise that next round. So we were going to run out of cash. Um, it was like very obvious. Um, so, you know, when you're trying to raise more money from new investors, not having that traction is a really hard sell. Um, the biggest difference on the second round um, was that one, we raised a lot of it from our existing investors. Um, I think like 50% of the round or something came from our existing investors. Because they had seen that we really buckled down and grounded out and made the hard decisions and self-sacrifice to keep the company alive and keep the investment from going to zero. And we were making money, too. So they felt more comfortable giving us more money to grow and sustain in the future versus, you know, the possibility that they were just throwing money onto a, a sinking ship. Right. Um, the other thing, too, is we rejiggered who we were targeting um, for the round because, you know, we had a healthy business, we were growing, I won't say we were rocket ship hyper growth scale, but like we're growing every month. Um, but when you're trying to raise venture capital, you really need to be building a billion dollar business in five to seven years, which at this point, and at that point, we weren't really on that growth trajectory, but we're growing. Um, so we refocused on raising from more angel investors who, you know, they would love for you to grow a billion dollar business, but growing any type of business and um, making more money. Um, it's be a return know, for them. Right? Yeah, 5X exit, 10X exit is good for an angel investor, right. whereas like, that might not be good for a VC. So rejiggering who we were targeting helped a ton too. In terms of traction, like what was what was working better last, you know, last year and now than it was when you had tried to raise unsuccessfully? Was it user growth? Was it user engagement, like active usage, both? Like what was, in terms of traction that you mentioned, what was working better? The biggest difference was we changed our business model because we were trying to go down the VC path or, you know, grow that hyper growth company. We needed a model where it was, OK, we can apply fuel to the fire and grow. And typically in most venture backed B2B SaaS businesses, that means salespeople. The tough thing is that the type of product we sell, which is um, internal knowledge sharing software, like an internal wiki, most of the people coming in the door don't want to talk to us. They want to just use the product, make sure it works, and then they buy. But they don't want to get on the phone with the salesperson. Um, and so when we were trying to use salespeople to sell a product to people who don't want to talk to salespeople, we were spending a bunch of money and not having much success there. So during that time, um, time period to grow faster, we stopped doing sales and made everything um, no touch. So basically self-serve where people can just try the product and buy it. And we also launched a freemium, um, freemium plan too, where people can try the product out and make sure they really like it. And then they hit like a capacity limit or need some features and then they buy. So we basically had a more efficient sales model and we're spending less money, which ultimately it's kind of counterintuitive, but like by not doing sales, we actually ended up making more money faster. <laughs> Right. Okay. Yeah. I was going to ask, was that when you, around the time when you launched the freemium plan, how, 
how long did it take for that to 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 i don't want to say work isn't the right word but uh, obviously freemium is fairly easy to gain traction as long as you're driving people to the website and you have some awareness which tetra does um, but obviously there's there's some challenges with that right getting people to uh, as you said self-serve to the point where they're going to activate to a paying customer on their own like what were some of the early challenges when you shifted your business model to freemium and how did you work through those yeah, the biggest challenge was probably we hit a huge dip in new revenue. Um, right. So like before we switched to freemium, we were using a time-based free trial. So people who tried the product would hit a decision point, you know, within like two weeks. Sometimes we'd extend their trial if they asked, but it was like two to three weeks right. on whether or not they were going to buy. So we had a lot of new accounts coming in. Um, but then when we launched freemium, that started to reverse and... Uh, because you didn't have that like two to three week decision period, it started extending out, you know, much longer. Um, so like new revenue basically tanked, right? but people were buying the product eventually, but just at a smaller ticket size because they would buy it with like five users and then start adding on users as they started using Tetra with more people in the organization. So there was kind of this like uh, inflection point or like trough where new revenue tanked and upgrade revenue was like starting to go but hadn't started right. to increase yet and we had like six months where growth was just like really really slow i think our worst month ever for net new uh mrr like monthly recurring revenue was december 2018 and then we had one so of a couple our months best, after you launched yeah right? like literally the following month in january we had one of our best months ever in like right. three years of the company so yeah, it just took a little while for upgrade revenue to start to grow. And now our upgrade revenue outpaces um, new revenue pretty handily. But more interestingly, it outpaces all of our downgrades and churn, too. So we have net negative MRR growth, um, like pretty much every month, which is nice. Well, I was going to say, what was the influence? What was the impact on churn and moving moving to freemium? Because obviously you have people are more deliberate in their buying decision at that point. Did you find that? Yeah. So um, before when it was time based, basically what was happening was people would hit a decision point and be like, eh, I need more time. So I guess I'll just buy this for right. a month. Yep. And because we don't have salespeople, we weren't, you know, pre-selling an annual contract for 12 months um, and everything's self-serve. Like you just buy monthly. Um, so basically they were like buying an extended free trial evaluating it for like a month or two and then churning um, right, if they right. weren't using the product. Now, because the commitment is much lower, the people who buy are really sticky because they're buying because they want to buy. Um, and like they believe they can get the rest of the organization using it too. So they start inviting more people and then upgrade revenue grows from there. Right. I want to get yeah. more into the product in a bit, but I want to I want to shift real quick to, to talk about the team and your process around planning and... Uh, what what size is is the is the Tetra team these days? We're five and a half people. We have uh, five full time people in Somerville and one part time engineer in Australia. How does that shake down? So obviously it's you and Nelson, but in terms of uh, everyone's role, like how does that how does that shake out? Uh, the split between Nelson and I is I take pretty much everything on the business side of the company, and yeah. then Nelson takes everything on the product side of the company, and then there's obviously overlap. In between because marketing right. success uh support those are all connected because we don't have humans um doing that type of stuff for the most part um 
And then we have a CTO. Her, her name's Shawnee. She's great. She runs the engineering team. Uh, we have another full-time engineer, um, one part-time engineer in Australia, and then a full-time support person. Right. And so, like, what's been your approach? Because obviously you're a small team. We were talking about this before, right? Like the balance between doing and planning. What's your approach to planning for the business right now? Like, you know, we're we're at the end of the year here. Like, uh, so using 2020 as, as a blueprint here, like, are you building out an annual plan for 2020? Do you move on a quarterly basis? Like, what's at, at the size that Tetra is now, what's made the most sense for you? We've tried a lot of different models. The best one that I found that has worked as the CEO of the company uh, is we give people autonomy to make decisions and run their own part of the company, kind right. of as an owner on what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But they also have to have accountability for that as well. Um, so the way I do it is we have like a yearly goal that we set towards the end of the end of the year. So we're working through that now that we want to hit. Um, we try to base it off of like real numbers and growth rates from before rather than just like picking a number that's unrealistic because that's not motivating. So you're basing uh, off historical context. So like how, how you grew last year and, and you're, you're kind of taking a shot at how you can, how you can improve on that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like we're, we're realists and you know, like we don't, we don't plan to raise more funding right now. And so it's like, all right, what are our resources that we're likely going to have over the next year? So you have to actually be like real about that. Um, and not live in like fantasy land as a CEO. So for us, you know, it's like looking at how much we grew last year, we grew 64% um, revenue wise last year. So it's like, uh, okay, if we did that again, we would be at um, like 1.4 million or something uh, for end of next year. But we think we can make improvements on these parts of the company. So like we should be able to beat that um, by, you know, that that's kind of just like, guesswork but like we should be able to do better than that right right like we want to just do the same um so then like all right we agree on that number it's usually myself nelson and shawnee is kind of like the executives figuring that out um and then once we have that number uh we do quarterly planning for like all right what are each what are each department going to be responsible for and what are their kpis um we agree on those set those again based off of like real numbers and improvements we try to have a 50% hit, hit rate on hitting our goals. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea behind that is like 50% is ambitious enough and big enough. Um, or like you should be picking a goal that is ambitious enough and big enough where it forces you to think outside the box and all the stuff you're doing to hit the goal. But you also want it to be like realistic enough too, where like you're never going to hit it. Um, and then... Interesting. Uh, so when yeah. you say 50%, are you saying 50% of the goals you set collectively as a team? No, we set uh, we set the goals in each. So like each person, um, we use like DRIs, directly responsible individuals. So yeah. like I'm the DRI on marketing and sit like uh, revenue right now. Nelson's DRI on product. Shawnee's DRI on engineering. Um, so what we'll do is uh, Shawnee, Nelson, and I will pick our goals and then we'll kind of talk about them. And then like I have final say, but obviously, obviously like letting them come to me with the goal and explain. Like, here's how I'm thinking about this. And then we agree on it, roll it out to the rest of the team with the understanding that we should be hitting our goals 50% of our time. Meaning like in the last four quarters, you should have hit your goal twice. And it's okay that you missed it twice. Right. Because like if you're hitting your goal 100% of the time, 
you're basically forecasting at that point, right? right like, right. yeah. Yeah. And like, or you're setting you're sandbagging it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you're setting less ambitious goals theoretically so that you can hit them and look really good, right? But if you're hitting your goals none of the time, you're probably being unrealistic and like way too ambitious and you're underperforming too, right? So we had to have, we actually had a big discussion as a team of like, what is the percentage where we should hit our goals just so we're all on the same page around that, which was really helpful. So is there a challenge there in terms of, so so if somebody say, if if a traffic goal or a signup goal, right, isn't hit in one specific quarter, that's going to hit a revenue goal that might belong to someone else, right? So so it's it's a domino effect wherein it, even if somebody's hitting their goals 50% of the time, the times that they're not, that's having some influence and impact on someone else's goal, correct? So is how do you how do you uh how do you how do you balance that? Um one it's just like make people talk to each other. Um <laughs> yeah. you know like communication is big, yeah. Yeah, like Typically, when there's like two problems between people, the biggest thing is just like go talk to each other and it resolves itself right, right, like percent right. of the time. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like being upfront and realistic about that stuff and talking about it beforehand of like, all right, what happens if like this happens or this happens? Like, right. um, and setting like constraints of like, all right, well, I expect to have this many trials that I can then sell to each month. So, like, assuming I have that, I should be able to hit my goal. And like at that point, it doesn't really matter. Right. Like the other people can there. anticipate. Right. 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 Totally. So it's just like being open and communicative with the team and being upfront with the understanding. It's like, look, we obviously want to hit our business goals and grow. But like really what we're trying to do is learn how to build a growth machine. That's the most important thing. So like the outputs matter, but really it's the learning on how to grow that matters the most, or at least that's right. what I've so do you start from the revenue goal and back into everything else or is it more kind of sounds like it's a little bit of hybrid where you're also working with some of the other individuals and hearing what they think is most realistic sort of like bottoms up. Uh, but so where, do, where's, where's the starting point? It's like bottoms up, top down, bottoms up, top down till we feel good about it right. and just like make a decision and ship it. Right. Um, like it's really easy to pull a goal out of thin air as the CEO, right? And just be like, I want to hit five million next yeah, year. Yeah. But like, so we need you yeah, can do we need that. Two hundred fifty thousand visitors. Yeah, right. Yeah, you can do that. But if it's like, okay, hey, you want to hit five million, but I'm a team of two people, right? Like, and like we're already pretty much maxed out on what we're doing. That's like impossible, right? Uh, and like you don't want to be the person who's setting things, and then like everyone is kind of like, you know, saying like, yeah, yeah, totally. That sounds good. And in their heads being like, yeah, that's never going to happen. Whatever. Right, right. Like you want it to actually be motivating and realistic, but challenging basically. Sure. So like I always try to base it off of reality. It's just how I am. Like w because we're resource constrained, we have to actually be real about the resources we have. And it's not like, all right, let's hit 5 million. And in order to do that, I'm going to go raise a bunch of funding and like sell off a bunch of the company. That's not how we operate. Yeah. Um, so like we're trying to be real about what is it we're trying to do and how can we actually hit that while making a couple bets that we hope work or not. And so you're, you're a small team, right? So prioritization is everything, right? So, yeah. you know, once you, once you kind of set your goals and, and have your plan, it's easy to get distracted. So you know, we we were talking earlier about how sometimes it could it's, it could seem like when you're a small team and you're growing off profit, like you you have to do those things that work, and you're doing 
it, it feels repetitive, right? Um, ben Jabawi from uh, from Privy was on here recently, and he said, like, in the early days of Privy, it felt like they were doing the same thing every day for three years. But it worked, right? So you have a small team as well. There's a million things you can get distracted with. So talk about the importance of prioritizing the right activities and and how do you align you know, how do you line everyone's output around, around that principle? Yeah, it's really tough, uh, is my blanket statement on that. Um, but yeah, as a small resource con- constrained team, you basically have to work on the most important thing every single day. And often the most important thing every single day is the thing you've done every day for the last six months. Right. Um, I was, I've been reading this book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. That's oh, um, great. I just finished that like last month. Yeah, it's Fantastic. awesome. And yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really struck me was this. It was towards the end of the book, actually. And he was talking about how the difference between the best professionals and everyone else is the best professionals show up every day, even when it's boring to do the work and they never miss it. So like even when a workout is boring for an athlete, they show up and do the workout every day, even though it's not fun. And like that's what makes the difference between someone who's great and someone who's just good or OK. And being an entrepreneur is no different, right? You figure out what works, that's what you're trying to do. And then once you know that, you have to then do it every single day. And oftentimes when you know you don't have the luxury of just hiring another person to do it for you, that means you do it every single day. Um, so yeah, like it's it's tough. I don't know how to make that happen other than just like make sure you get to the office every day and then I use Asana to prioritize like what it is I'm trying to work on and I ask myself every time I decide to do something does this contribute to the goal that I set or other people set at the beginning of the quarter and if it doesn't I say no to it and we're just like not going to do it and that's okay um but yeah just like making sure I'm staying focused on the most important thing every day and that's a discipline that you guys have across the team yeah and it's really tough like if you get the wrong person in who um is susceptible to like shiny objects or like Mm -hmm. well this is a great opportunity like we should work on this you basically are always saying no to them because it's like no there's an opportunity cost to um you know like uh doing that conference speaking gig because you're not doing something else that's not driving you towards your goal even though the conference speaking gig might be cool and might be a good opportunity and it's fun and like you get accolades but it doesn't actually drive you towards your goal so yeah we say no to like 95 percent of things so we can do the five percent of most important things extremely well and i feel like repetition too is so critical as, as you were just alluding to is when you find the things that work you have to do them at scale right and uh, when you're a well-funded company you can throw a bunch of people at that and you know, have hire 10 more writers or 10 more salespeople. But when you're doing, you know, when you have, when you're resource constrained, like you are, uh, it's much more important that you're focusing on things that can drive repeatable success. And like you said, doing a, a, a speaking gig could be cool. It might get you a, a, a small spike in awareness, but can you do that every week or every month for 12 months? Can you get speaking gigs every, every right. month and, and, and scale that? And it's, it's such an important, conversation or, or reminder to keep having when you're small is like, can this drive repeatable success right now without, you know, uh, with the resources that we have? Um, yeah. Cause when, the you're, other thing, when you're in a big company, you can hire a bunch of people under you to handle that stuff and you can go do, you can go 
do some speaking gigs and, and do that stuff. And it's, it's, it's all well and good, but, um, somebody needs to be driving those things, those levers that are working. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, the other thing I like about doing the work yourself every single day is you realize like, Oh, this is a repeatable process. You have to understand the process 100% because you're doing it every single day. Right. And you can basically make the decision of, okay, I'm now going to go hire someone, but I know exactly what it is they need to do and have them do it. Or I can automate this process, which is often like where we try to lean towards is like, if we can use, if we can have computers do it automatically, we're going to invest the time to have computers do it because it means we don't have to hire and manage another human to do it, which is like, if you keep doing that over and over again, you end up with systems that compound in value over time because they're infinitely scalable because you can just keep having computers do it. And it basically is like setting a really good foundation for future growth. Right. Like a lot of companies, they just throw humans at problems, which can be cool and it feels good. And like the first question you get asked by anyone you talk to when they um, like you're talking to you about your business, like, well, how many people are you? Right. Yeah. Like that's the first question. So people measure success by headcount. Uh, so it's easy to like hire a ton of people and start building like a skyscraper. Like if you were to compare hypergrowth to a skyscraper, but if you don't have a good foundation, the skyscraper is going to fall over. Whereas I don't know if you've ever seen a building being built, but like digging the hole and laying the foundation, like creating a good foundation takes as much time, if not longer than like building the actual building. Once right. the foundation's set, the building goes up super fast, but you have to have a really good foundation. Otherwise it's just all going to collapse, which you see a lot. Oh yeah. All the time. And so for you, uh, as a founder and, and somebody who's working a lot on execution day in and day out, how do you, uh, how do you split your time between planning, between execution between running the business, right? Payroll and, and, and taxis and like all these things, right? Like you're, you're, you're a small team. So you have to do a lot of these things. So how do you, like, what, what have you found that works in terms of prioritizing your time and being able to, you know, at times I'm sure it feels like do everything. Um, again, it's hard. Uh, like there's always new stuff cropping up. It's like, all right, I'm the only one who can and should do this. Like, we have to pay this contractor. I have to go pay them, right? Um, part of it's using software to like make that stuff easier, you know? Uh, so instead of like cutting a check and putting it in an envelope and dropping it in the mail, like obviously you should set up software to pay your contractors, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's like using software. I've also been trying to bundle all those tasks together as much as possible because you know, there's like shallow work. It doesn't take a lot of thought, but you just need to invest the time. But doing each one of those, like a little bit of the day is just mental overhead. Whereas if you can just stack all the admin tasks together. Time block it all, right? right. Yeah, basically time block it all. It's like, all right, I'm going to be doing this for half a day, but that means I'm freeing my brain up the other four and a half, five days or whatever to do actually like creative work. Um, There's a lot of discipline there too, because you can get hit up with something midweek and the switching cost, if you'd be like, all right, I'm going to go handle this right now, is tremendous, right? Uh, but if you're just like, all right, saving that, I do that thing on Fridays, yep. uh, Friday afternoons. I'm, I'm not going to pay attention to that right now. I'll handle it on Friday afternoon. It's It sounds so easy, but it's tough because yeah, we're been, conditioned been... to like checking things off. We like to uh, – there's this thing right now, even if it seems small, I could do this right now. Uh, but the switching cost is, is, is just immense. 
Yeah, I've been um, really cognizant of that. Like whenever I get interrupted by something, it really ramps down my ability to focus on what I'm trying to do. Like right. you see that when you see that with coders all the time, which is why they're like, don't bother me. Don't shoulder tap me. Right. It might but take them the same, 30 minutes to get into their like flow. Right? Yeah, totally. And it's the same. It's the same with all creative work, though. Anything you need to think deeply and load a bunch of information into your brain. Right getting interrupted is going to mess up your ability to think. So um, being really cognizant of what are those shallow tasks that, you know, like maybe aren't actually critical. I can punt them off to the end of the week and like it doesn't really matter. Bundling those all together and like having shallow work time allows you to have a lot of deep work time too. That's smart. I like that shallow, shallow work, deep work. Yeah. Um, the other thing really quick too, that I've been uh, experimenting with is like scheduling time to think. So how do so, you, I, I, I've heard a lot of people do that, but so how do you, how do you, and this is kind of odd because you don't structure it. Do you go for a walk? Do you put on some music? Do you walk away from the computer? Like what does that look like? Yeah. So for me, it means getting away from my computer. Um, like it's so easy to get distracted with yeah. your computer or by your phone. Um, just because you know you have like a thousand notifications and a thousand emails, and like we're saying, everything seems important. Um, so I've been like experimenting with disconnecting from technology and bringing like a pen and paper to a park or something like that, turning off my phone and just being like, all right, for the next two hours, I'm just gonna think about this really hard problem. And I do like a mind map basically, and I have like a big piece of paper. Right. Um, and it's pretty helpful for just like getting all that stuff into my brain and allowing it to kind of extrapolate everything out and like think about those really deep problems for like an hour and a half, two hours without being distracted by anything else. And it's really like there's a thousand, there's a thousand fires all the time that you need to do, but being able to think about those big, hairy, like mission critical challenges, you're never going to have the time unless you make the time. So how often, I, how often do you try to do that? Uh, I was doing it more often, um, like a couple months ago and then I got out of the habit and then I'm like, Oh, uh, it seems like we're like misaligned on our mission and like what we're working <laughs> towards, which is like one of those big problems. So I'm starting to schedule it in, uh, again now, but I try to do it like every two weeks. But again, it just depends upon like what, what are the big challenges that we need to think through. Right. So Back to the product, who who are your best customers right now and, and how do they find you? Most of our customers find us through organic search. Um, we also have a Slack, uh, Slack app directory integration, but that's like 10%. The other 95% or 90% uh, all come through organic search. So blog posts uh, or is it more website pages or? What, what, was, what was the question? Is it, is it more blog posts or is it just like website pages? It's a mix. Um, it's like some blog posts, some website pages. Our best converting blog posts are always like intent driven searches, you know. Sure. So it's the difference between like, you know, internal wiki software versus like what's what is an internal wiki, like that type of thing, versus a post on like generalized knowledge management best practices. Sure. Sure. So the intent driven ones are always the best, but like it's good to have a mix, obviously, so you capture more eyeballs. Um yeah, and our best customers are typically companies that are between um, 50 and 500 people with the identify, identifying characteristic that they're growing and hiring and onboarding new people regularly. Because like 
our product, it's knowledge sharing, right? And you basically write something down once to reuse it over and over again with multiple people. Right. And the time you experience that pain point the most is when you have someone join your team or your company who doesn't know anything and you need to get a lot of information in their brain as fast as possible. So if you're hiring people regularly, you're experiencing that pain point regularly and you experience the value of Tetra regularly. Whereas if like you hire someone once a year, you're gonna not have, you're gonna like not sure. feel good about the product as often. So high velocity of hiring. So, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a huge market, which is, which is a good thing on the surface, but have you had any luck or made any attempts to niche down to marketing agencies within that or, or, um, manufacture whatever it is like if you tried to niche down to specific industries that also fit that employee size and hiring velocity and have you had any luck uh we've talked about it before but like we've never made the hard decision of like okay we are only going after marketing agencies right. and we're going to retool everything around marketing agencies and like what that would look like is you know changing the headline on our side of like grow your marketing agency team efficiently or something like that. So people who are agencies um, see the homepage and like, all right, this thing's for me. Um, to be honest, we're starting to explore that now. Like it's always been kind of half steps to like, all right, well, how can we kind of reach more people um, and like make enough money to survive? Like that's been the goal for the last four years is like, just don't go out of business. But now that we're profitable, we're starting to think through more around like, all right, how do we actually thrive and grow faster, which probably means getting narrower on who the product is for and what the pain point is that you're trying to solve. Right, right. Because I mean, every everybody has internal processes they want to document. But to your point, yeah, people that have a high hiring velocity, it's even more important, right? Because you have more people that need yeah. to get up to speed quicker. And yeah, uh, like the thing is, is like you know, everyone has processes they need to document. Everyone's hiring people, but. Right you know, we're only five people, so we can only prioritize features and like the feature set and like integrations that a marketing agency wants are different than the feature set of an internal IT team inside of a, you know, 3000 person company or something like that. Um, so like we really do and should need to figure out uh, like exactly who it is we're going after um, and it's really important for us as a resource constrained team uh, and that goes again back to like taking the time to figure out those bigger challenges and like really um, grok them on like what should we be doing there's so many things we could do we need to like really dig into that deep and go deep on that when you dive into the the users now and the data that you have now is there any one niche or industry that's more represented than others uh, our best customers are tech companies and mark and like agencies. So either like software or marketing agencies. Those are the biggest companies that pay us the most and use the product the most. Yeah, they have sizable tech stacks. Uh, so yeah, it makes sense to to bring all the processes under one under one. It's especially for yeah, they're all using Slack too, right? So right, yeah, it's like. <laughs> uh, I think it's I, I forget what it was the last time I ran this, but like seventy five percent of our top one hundred teams that pay us the most all have Slack connected, so it's like they use Slack for sure. Right, right. Well, that's got, that's got to be sort of a prerequisite, right? Or, or do you have users that sign up and aren't Slack users, and then also sign up for Slack at the same time that they're signing up and and trying Tetra? 
So for the first two years of Tetra, you couldn't use the product without Slack. There was right. no way to sign up without a Slack account. Yeah. Uh, I think in year two or three, at some point between then, uh, we let you create an account without Slack and then you can bolt Slack on after the fact. Yeah. Um, so now it's like 75 or 80% of our new signups sign up without Slack. They're either using like Google Apps sign up or just signing up with their email. Sure. But then they bolt on Slack after the fact. But you can use the product as your internal wiki without Slack and it's like its own app. It's not dependent on Slack. Slack is just a feature, which was a deliberate decision because we right. didn't be dependent on someone else's platform in order to survive. Because sure. if they change the rules, you're out of business. Um, but like Slack Smart. still is yeah. a selling point and an important feature right. for us. So uh, what worked early on uh, a couple of years ago in terms of acquisition, you kind of went through like what, what's working now. Was it, um, I think I remember the last time you were on here, it was uh, uh, the Slack marketplace was huge, right? The app marketplace. Um, but yeah, like what, what were the, some of the things that worked in terms of getting like your first 100 customers? Uh, so the first 100 customers, the biggest thing we did was uh, ride the wave of a platform that was growing, which was right. Slack at the time. I think we were probably one of like the first 25 or 50 apps in the Slack app store. And That's we made like, yeah, at the time we made like a hard pivot to be like, all right, we were betting the farm on Slack and it worked out. Um, That's a good move. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of our um, referrals for new customers came in via the Slack app directory because like people were using Slack. They wanted Slack apps and there were really no Slack apps. Um, and also like knowledge management in Slack is was and still is a pain point for most teams. Um but then the other thing that we did also was start to hyper tool our uh, marketing website around um, terms that we knew people were searching for for an existing category, which was like wiki, Slack wiki, team wiki, company wiki. Uh, and over time, the mix has changed where as there's been more competition in the Slack app directory, we get less and less people, which is fine. And as uh, we've been able to improve our seo on organic pages like that's where the majority of people come through right right how has um we kind of touched on a little bit of this earlier but since transitioning to freemium talk about the influence that freemium has on marketing on support right because it, it, it opens different different um opportunities in terms of marketing and sales and support so talk about the influence that just freemium has on on acquisition efforts so we get uh like two to three more times um the amount of new companies that we've never seen before signing up every single month since we launched to freemium or switched to freemium uh, so you're getting about like 250 new uh accounts created every month uh before we were freemium and then after that it went up to like four six hundred or something like that pretty quickly and like now it's like 850 or so a month um so we get a lot more people into the product to try it out which is useful because it's like people that we can um like teach about the product and how to set up good internal processes um we have chat support for everyone including free accounts so like if you create an account, you can message us over chat. Um, so it's it's basically like we have to be okay with supporting those people and paying the cost there because the hope is if they get value out of the product and 
use it and set it up and roll it out to the rest of their team, they're going to buy and they're like unlikely to switch off of us because the switching costs are really high to switch from one system to the other. Um, so it's more like probably the biggest change if I were to boil it down is we've gotten really good at being patient and making long-term investments. Uh, so it's like, all right, we're going to support all these free people um, because if they're using the product and getting value out of it, they're going to buy and they're going to stick around. We're going to create content because that means we can, you know, hopefully have it rank, get a lot of eyeballs on it. Trying out the product is really easy. You don't have to talk to a salesperson, get you in there, get you into the machine, long-term investment. Um, and like all the short-term type of stuff that we could do, like, all right, we're going to hire like five salespeople and really try <laughs> to crank it. Like we just don't do that type of stuff anymore. Profitability is fun, right? Yeah, you can you can make those longer term bets. Um, yeah, and it's like a totally different model because we don't. Obviously, we're ambitious. We want to build a big business, but we don't have the arbitrary time constraint, which is set by venture capitalists as LPs that sure. you have to build a billion dollar company in five to seven years so they can apply to their fund. Right, right? right. this is a little longer now, but like. We don't have that constraint, so we can just think about things in a dramatically different way, which is useful because it's basically an arbitrage opportunity. Right, right. Yeah. So <clears throat> I kind of want to end here because, uh, like, what, what you mentioned earlier about ramen profitability and those lean times that you had gone through a few years ago, or you weren't taking a paycheck. Um, it's easy to gloss over, like, not that we glossed over it, but what it took to get to the other side of that. So, what do you, what would you attribute the most? to how you were able to work through that period of not taking a paycheck of, you know, staring, going out of business in the face. Like, what do you attribute getting through that? What are the things that you did as a team that got you through that? Yeah. Um, before I dive into like the specifics of the team dynamics, like the first thing I'll acknowledge is I can attribute a lot of privilege and luck to being able to do that. Um, you know, like I'm not, rich by any means but like i have parents who own a house with an extra bedroom worst case scenario was like i had to move back in with them which a lot of people don't have um but let's just assume that's the case um for this scenario or at least that's my data point um the biggest thing for me was just like managing my own psychology and constantly telling myself what's the worst thing that's going to happen right uh you know because like in the moment it feels hard and it's painful and it it hurts. It's like, ah, oh, like I'm not making money. This is tough. Like taking on debt. This is tough. Like I'm selling my stock that I earned in my previous company to pay my rent. That's tough. Um, what if it doesn't work was constantly going through my head. Like I'm wasting all this money. This is bad. But the nice thing is like Nelson and I are both technical. Um, like I have a background in engineering. Nelson's more on the product side, but also can build too. So it was like, Worst case scenario is we lose everyone on the team uh, and it just boils down to the two of us and we have to keep grinding it, grinding it out. It's like, all right, well, we're making enough money where like if it's just the two of us, we could at least pay ourselves real salaries and like get rid of all of our expenses like office space. And uh, like that wouldn't be too bad and we could just keep growing it indefinitely. So like that was worst case scenario. So thinking about it that way helped me a lot because it's like, all right, well, I'm building an asset. And if that's the worst case scenario, like it's not that bad. Um, so that's how I dealt with it. Um, for the team, the thing that was really helpful was being hyper transparent about how we were thinking about everything down to sharing all the financials 
in the company, including like salary data. We share that internally. So like everyone knows what everyone else is making. Uh, and the reason why that's important is like people need to be able to look at that and on their own see a light at the end of the tunnel uh, with reasonable assumptions of, okay, if we keep growing at this much, uh, we'll probably get to here and these are the people we're going to hire. So like, we'll eventually have this much money. So like, I can probably get my salary back up in a reasonable time frame. And am I willing to make that commitment to the company, hoping that, you know, the value of the equity that you get is worth more than that. Um, and so by being like really transparent about that, the people who were with us during that time period, were able to like really mentally commit to that journey because they knew that like assuming all the things went the way we thought they were going to, which were reasonable assumptions, there would be a light at the end of the tunnel and we'd be fine. Um, so yeah, that helped a lot. What about in terms of like the actual activity? Like what, what was there, was there things that you were doing that maybe, uh, you put more focus into at that time? Uh, whether it was content or whether it was improvements of the product, like was there, were there certain activities that like, all right, we're going to prioritize our time here and yeah. grind out these things. And that's kind of like what, what was able to get you to the other side of that? Yeah, the biggest thing, the biggest lever we pulled was change the pricing. Um, we had a model that was more geared towards like an inside sales team. And we changed our pricing to actually fit the business model that we thought would work, which was um, which was uh, freemium. Um, so we basically like lowered the cost of the entry level plan, got rid of the highest level plan, um, added the freemium plan. Oh, that was all at that same time. Okay. Yeah. So that was during when like we were kind of through that grind mode. Um, and like that ended up helping re revenue growth, um, was just like changing the pricing and then also investing in content as well helped a lot too. Cause like we were driving more eyeballs to the site and we had a lower barrier to entry to sign up. Uh, so like getting more people to the site for, I don't want to say free cause you have to pay humans to write the content, but you know, it was an asset that we were creating that would pay dividends over time, um, was really helpful. Um, yeah. And then like during the, during the like grind of profitability time at the worst case, it was literally just like decrease expenses. Like when you look at profitability, the equation is obviously revenue minus expenses. Everyone always talks about growing revenue faster. So like, okay, we need to grow revenue at 50%. We need to grow revenue 50% faster to hit profitability. But the other side of the equation is expenses, which is if we can cut expenses by 50%, we can get there the same way. And cutting the expenses, if you can do it, is usually like much more in your control than growing revenue. Um, it's like we just made the hard decisions to cut expenses, really. Well, the other interesting thing about launching freemium, you were you were you were making long term bets when you had really a short term timeline, right? Which is interesting, right? The long la launching a freemium plan, uh, reducing pricing, investing in content, not things that you know, necessarily work right away, but they did, you know, in, in this case, you know, help, help you sort of come through that period of time. Right. Uh, obviously decreasing expenses wouldn't have happened without that, but, um, it's interesting that the bets you made were, were more longer term bets and that's helped you as a, as a group get through, get through those lean, those lean periods. Yeah. Once we, once we got expenses under control, it truly felt like we were never going to outright fail. Right. And so, if you feel like you're never going to outright fail, you know, it might not 
be as great as you want it to be, but like you're not going to go bankrupt, it allows you to make those longer term bets and feel better about them than, you know, running around with your hair on fire trying to make short term bets to like juice growth. Um, right. And often too, like the short time bets are expensive. Like even if you get it working, you know, you're probably gonna have to hire other people right. to do it because it's not an automated system or an asset you're creating. Advertising, so, sales, yeah, it all, it's totally. all. Advertising, super, yeah. sales, like all that type of stuff costs money. And when you don't have any money, it's like, all right, what can we work on that doesn't cost <laughs> money? And typically the only thing that is in that vein uh, is like longer term stuff. Right, right. Yeah. Andy, this was great, man. You're you're always super transparent. I love the blog posts that you write uh, every now and then. It seems like you're due for one. Have you written one lately? I'm um, due for like ten. I got. Do you have a profitability one coming? I got to schedule, <laughs> schedule that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but you're you're always super transparent. Love reading the content uh, and love catching up with you. So this this is a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on and being so open. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always great to chat with you, John. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this episode valuable, check out our other episodes or subscribe to get new ones. If you want to support the show, we'd love for you to leave a review or share it with someone. And if you want a tool to help you track and improve your business performance, try Databox free at databox.com.